Hi, I'm Joanna Rowell, and this is the Grok Science Show. Today we're going to be staying in one place, but we'll be traveling back in time. The place, Fossil Lake, straddles Wyoming, Colorado, and Utah, and it's, a, and it's particularly rich in very well-preserved fossils that are 52 million years old. My guest today, Dr. Lance Grandy, is an ichthyologist and curator at Chicago's Field Museum. He's also author of the new book, The Lost World of Fossil Lake, Snapshots from Deep Time. He's gonna take us far back in time, giving us a glimpse of an ancient community of very strange animals. So for the first part of the show, we're gonna talk about the fossil hunting culture that has developed at Fossil Lake over the past few hundred years. The first fossil workers at Fossil Lake were there for commercial reasons. I asked Dr. Grandy what these first entrepreneurs, as I called them, were like. And this is when I was introduced to Robert Lee Pegleg Craig. They lived a pretty hand-to-mouth existence. They, they were the first fossil workers in the area, though. People like Lee Craig, who worked from the 1890s to about the 1920s, he would dig material all summer and in the fall send it off to places like the Smithsonian, the American Museum, and Harvard and Yale who would buy the material. And um, he would uh, camp out at the site um, and uh, try and extract enough material so he could pay for winter lodging and uh, basically cleaning himself up for the, the colder months of the year. And he also supplemented his his uh, work by being the justice of the peace for the towns of Fossil and Kemmerer next door. But evidently that was not a terrifically high-paying job. Um, he still had to live in a tent for the warm months of the year at the base of the, the Fossil Butte. So Lee Craig, who was called the leading hard rock fisherman of the country, collected fossils and lived in a tent in the summer, and then, in the winter, acted as the nearby town's justice of the peace and election judge. If that's not enough, he also was missing one of his legs. Some just called him Peg Leg Craig because he actually had uh, one leg and uh, he lost another one in a, in a coal mine accident. And he used to carve wooden legs out of barrel staves. Um, and that's, that's how he climbed the hills with his uh, wheelbarrow to, to dig these uh, fossils. I mean, it, was, um, it must have been a tough life, but uh, he must have enjoyed it enough to stick with it for decades. This strong fossil hunting culture still exists at Fossil Lake, such as the Ulrich family, which has been involved in commercial quarrying for several generations. Now this made me curious, given that people at Fossil Lake are constantly surrounded by traces of evolution, what do they think of the theory of natural selection? Well, it's pretty interesting. They don't think much about it, because to them this is just a livelihood. And so, uh, um, you know, they, ha they have a variety of different ideas. Um, for example, um, Craig, uh, for some reason, thought the fossils that were 750,000 years old. Uh, nobody knows where he got that number, but um, um, he uh, he once told somebody that the uh, the fossils that he was digging were, I don't know, 
780,000 years, and somebody asked him how he figured that, and he said, well, he originally thought there were 750, and he'd been been working there for 30 years. I mean, it's... um, it's just a. It was a really strange kind of thing, and and the, the scientific elements were, were lacking for a lot of the early diggers there, because again, it was a hand-to-mouth existence, and um, it's a culture that exists there today. I mean, a lot of the commercial quarries they don't make a lot of money, but um, they, they seem to be really fascinated by the area, and. Um, you know, they they work it all summer and uh, spend all winter preparing these fossils for their shows and, and um, their sales. The large number of modern fossil hunters, whether they're commercial, scientific, or enthusiastic amateurs, is incredibly useful for paleontologists like Dr. Grandy. This shows how important it is for scientists performing studies in the field to form bonds with the communities within which they're working. I mean, one of the things that's helped me over the years is forming some good relationships with all the other people working out there. And when you um, take um, in all of the uh, amateurs and uh, the serious amateurs that go out there every year and and all of the commercial diggers, and, and you, you reach a number of several hundred people that are regularly out there digging every year. So um, having good relations with everybody that works in the area has been a big benefit to me because it's allowed me to have an unprecedented sample size in one of the best preserved um, faunas from, from the early tertiary of North America. So now let's move on to the second part of the show where we talk less about the community of people at Fossil Lake and talk more about the ancient community of animals. So first let's talk about what this time period was and why it was important. Well, you know, it's like all things with Earth history. Everything is um, connected to everything else. And uh, I'd like to take the story back to the end of the Cretaceous when we had this huge extinction of things as a result of an asteroid impact off the Yucatan coast, which killed about 80% of all species on the planet, including most of what we think of as dinosaurs. I mean, all the dinosaurs other than uh, the lineage uh, of birds. Um, This this resulted in a lot of open niches, and uh, there was a, uh, basically, there was a huge shift in um, group dominance. Um, Mammals became more prominent. Um, Flowering plants just continued to diversify, and um, teleost fishes basically took over aquatic environments. And there were a lot of things that happened at the after the end of the Cretaceous, and um, uh, the fossil lake deposits are s- somewhere in the in between when we had that great extinction and today. So it's a good look at how the world was uh, reconstructing itself over time. But what's particularly spectacular about these fossils from Fossil Lake is that. They are incredibly well-preserved, and they continue to be well-preserved for a period of a thousand years. So what you get is a very detailed snapshot of that 1,000 years. This 20-inch thick unit that I work out there probably uh, was deposited over a period of you know, a thousand years, plus or minus uh, several hundred years. 
So although that's a blink of an eye in geologic time, in ecological time, that's still a significant amount of time, uh, much more than, say, a single volcanic eruption. Um, it, 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 is, um, it is remarkable, though, because it meant for a long time there were ideal conditions for all these animals and plants to be fossilized, um, pretty rare conditions um, given the, the details of preservation that we see there. And what you see from these details is an ancient ecosystem that is incredibly different from what we see today. Or as Dr. Grandi put it, instead of seeing a bunch of fossils, you're seeing an extinct biota. I've also always been interested in fossil basin as an entire biota, um, an extinct biota, um, and something that is, you know, wildly different from what exists there today, you know, this the subtropical lake system that was there 52 million years ago. Well, today, you know, you're in a high mountain desert, 7,500 feet above sea level, and it's just so vastly different that, you know, it really amazes me. But what were these extinct ecosystems like? And in what way were they so different from what we see today? Well, it turns out that they were just different enough to be incredibly informative. You know, that, that's the interesting part about the fossil basin fauna is that they are close enough to living groups where we can pretty precisely fit them in an evolutionary context with living species. And um, that's one of my main interests is searching out the origin of the modern uh, biota here in North America. This led me to ask, in what way were the fish similar? And in what way were they different? Sure, and the raisin fishes are, are, many of them would be um, vaguely familiar, although familiar not with organisms that are fishes that exist in that area today. There are a lot of fishes there, for example, that exist today in tropical Asia um, that don't exist in North America today. Um, in fact, a lot of the fishes from the greener formation as a whole show this strong Asiatic connection um, that you don't see in that um, part of the world today. And I think that's partly a vestige of the old uh, arrangement of continents and seaways where at the, in, in the Cretaceous, North America was still divided into an eastern and western subcontinent, and the western subcontinent was connected to Asia. So one way these fish were different is that these ancient North American fish looked like the fish found today in Asia. Another difference is that these fish combined familiar traits in weird ways. There's a paddlefish in um, Fossil Lake. Um, there's a North American paddlefish today, and it's a filter feeder. It's a big fish. It can get to be several feet long, up to 100 pounds or more but it just swims through the water with its mouth open and, and almost like a baling whale type system, it filters microorganisms out of the water. But uh, in Fossil Basin, the paddlefish was a piscivore and found several specimens that have large fishes in its stomach. It was clearly, clearly chowing down on other swimming animals in the lake. But these fossils tell us more than the morphology of extinct animals. They also tell us about their embryology and even their behavior. Here are several examples of these, and the first involves 
a very peculiar stingray. And uh, this particular um, stingray species is often found associated with young. In fact, um, there is a mated pair that it was preserved. It looks like they were in the process of um, mating when they were actually killed and quickly buried. And that's almost unique. I mean, it's extremely rare to find anything like that. The same species, we also have specimens with pregnant specimens with embryos inside. And then there's another uh, example of one of these that just gave birth to two babies, and they were all preserved together. So it's possible that this particular species was coming into Fossil Lake to uh, breed from the surrounding streams. And there, I mean, there's virtually no end to the, the types of um, behavioral theories that you can come up with looking at all of these um, these plates of animals that are that are just fossilized together, sometimes in in uh, associated positions. I mean, you find plants that have been been uh, chewed on by insects, and you can find the insects that were doing the chewing. Um, you can you can find all of these connections in the fossil record, which which make it easy to look at this as a, a living community rather than just a bunch of rocks. All this talk of fish dying while mating or surrounded by their babies kind of made me a little sad. It also prompted me to go off my scripted interview questions to ask Dr. Grande if, while looking at these fossils, he ever felt kind of a existential melancholy. Oh, I, you know, it's, it's easy to remain detached from most of them because they're fish. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. I mean, you know, um, every, everything, let's put it this way, everything dies. And these guys not only died, but they've been preserved uh, uh, forever. And so they have, they have a, a bit of immortality in a sense. <laughs> I asked Dr. Grandy to tell me about his favorite fossils from Fossil Lake. He had some fascinating things to say about the birds and mammals from this time period, including a particularly terrifying carnivore capable of swinging through the trees on a prehensile tail. Well, I'm trained as an ichthyologist, so my favorite is, is always the fishes. But I have to say, I've been really impressed by the assortment of birds. There's such a variety there. We recently described a bird that was basically an inter intermediate between a swift and a hummingbird. I mean, you get a lot of things that have odd combinations of characteristics which help us with our, our understanding of the evolution of larger groups um, in, the, in the, not just the fossil record, but uh, today. And there are also some very unusual things. I mean, there's a mammal, there's a unique mammal that we've been working on that actually has more vertebrae than any other known mammal. And uh, it's the earliest known mammal with a prehensile tail. And the surprising thing is it's a carnivore. So this was uh, um, swinging through the tre trees on a tail, and it was a carnivorous uh, animal eating the other little animals in the trees. If you'd like to learn more about Fossil Lake and to see some of these incredibly beautiful fossil photographs, Check out Lance Grandy's wonderful book, The Lost World of Fossil Lake, Snapshots from Deep Time. It's the most fun I've had working on a project in some time, so I liked it. <laughs> and with that, it's time to end today's show.
My thanks go out to Dr. Lance Grandy, ichthyologist, paleontologist, and curator at Chicago's Field Museum for being my guest today. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, check us out on grox.net. We're also on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter, so look for us there. From everyone at Grox, including Force Golden, Charles Lee, and Frank Ling, I'm Joanna Rowell. So long, and thanks for all the fish. We're all connected to each other biologically, to the Earth chemically, to the rest of the universe atomically. I think nature's imagination is so much greater than man's. He's never gonna let us relax, 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 relax. We live in an in-between universe where things change all right, but according to patterns, rules, or as we call them, laws of nature. I'm this guy standing on a planet. Really, I'm just a speck. I'm just a speck compared with a star. The planet is just another speck. To think about all of this, to think about the vast emptiness of space. There's billions and billions of stars, billions and billions of specks. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. Is also within us. We're made of star stuff. We are away from the cosmos to know itself. Across the sea of space, the stars are other sun. We've traveled this way before, and there is much to be learned. We're all connected to each other biologically, to the Earth chemically. The rest of the universe atomic. Find it elevating and exhilarating to discover that we live in a universe which permits the evolution of molecular machines as intricate and subtle as we. I know that the molecules in my body are traceable to phenomenon in the cosmos. That makes me want to grab people in the street and say, have you heard this? The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. The cosmos is also within us. We're made of star stuff. We are away from the cosmos to know itself. There's this tremendous mass of waves all over in space, which is the light bouncing around the room, going from one thing to the other, and it's all really there, really, really there. But you gotta stop and think about it, about the complexity, and really get the pleasure. It's all really there, really, really there. The inconceivable nature of nature. To think about all of this, to think about the vast emptiness of space. There's billions and billions of stars, billions and billions of specks. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. The cosmos is also within us. We're made of star stuff. 